Welcome to the Table Dallas podcast. At the Table Dallas, we create a sacred space to worship, connecting our stories with the story of God as revealed in scriptures. We invite you now to listen to this week's discussion. All right, welcome to the table here at the Mill Street, Mill Street House or wherever you are gathering. Well, I was trying to, I was going to say something else there, but it's okay. The Mill Street House and uh, wherever you're gathering us with us from literally around the world. We're glad that you're with us here at the table, Dallas. We are continuing our series on why do we need a savior? And I want to begin with a question. Actually, I'm going to give you two statements, okay? I'm going to give you two statements and... Before you blurt out an answer, I just want you to think for a moment, all right? Think for a moment, and then I'll give you an opportunity to respond. Two statements, all right? And I want you to listen to them and see um, whether you agree or disagree or your response to these two statements. Are you ready? Statement number one, the heart is fickle and can never be trusted. That's number one. The heart is fickle and can never be trusted. And number two... The heart is true and can always be trusted. Once again, first one, the heart is fickle, can never be trusted. The heart is true and can also, uh, can always be trusted. Agree, disagree, thoughts, connections? Can I ask what do you agree? You can ask for a question of clarification. Part, is that the mind or is it the emotional part in this sense? Uh, good question. So if you didn't hear that, the question was, is that is he talking about the seat of the emotions, how we normally use it here in the States and in our culture, or is it something broader than that? Because we did, if you remember, study a few, few weeks back here about heart in Hebrew. That idea is very different. Let's, let's, for this time being, let's stay with in our culture as we generally use the word heart, just so that we're all using it from the same perspective. The heart is fickle and can never be trusted. Or the heart is true, it can always be trusted. What do you think? Yes. Do you have to use uh-huh. <laughs> what about the always and the never? Do we do we have to use to No, you don't have to. Soul? So what are you thinking? The the yes and no. <laughs> sometimes fickle, sometimes true. Yeah, sometimes so fickle. Never yeah, and always shouldn't be in there. See you know, mm-hmm. It always makes it, see, good test questions from teachers always have words like that in it, right? The always piece, right? I heard someone over here say, yes. And what do you mean by yes? I mean, yes, I think the we know, elements but... of both. Both statements have their moments where they're true. Okay. So in our culture today, using heart the way we've defined it as that emotional center of who we are, which statement do you think best represents... The culture in which we live today. You're raising your hand. Is that no? Your, oh. The first option. Oh, the first option that the the heart is fickle and can never yeah. be trusted. Why do you think that is the case? Give me an example, or, or tell me why you think that. I think because they're like we're blasted on social media all the time with like people whining and complaining, and it's just okay. life is a travesty. Okay. And we Good. in our culture we right. tie emotion to instability. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. I would say at the same time though we are seeing lots of people blindly follow their fickle hearts into rampages online. (laughs) Okay. It almost seems like whenever we watch like children's movies and everything, they always, the overall message is follow your heart. The heart is not going to lie to you. It's it's the one true thing about you. Yeah, isn't it interesting? Because when I was putting this together, my first thought was, well, everybody's going to say number two. 
Everybody's going to say, follow your heart, follow your heart. And both this morning and here at the evening table, the first leading part was, oh, it's the first one. You know, that idea of maybe the heart is too fickle and it shouldn't be trusted. But here's, my, here's what I think is most interesting. In this statement, notice what we focused on. I made a statement and they're almost, they're, they are parallel, just changed a couple words. The heart is fickle, it can never be trusted. The heart is true, it can always be trusted. What did we focus in on? The subject. Always and never. The subject. We did a little bit of the always and never, but we focused in on the heart piece and we totally ignored the last word. Trusted. Trusted. Isn't that interesting, right? So we're not sitting here, we're looking at the heart and we're saying really the key that I was trying to drive with this, right, is really that by, by nature, trust is inevitable in all of us. Trust is inevitable. We are going to trust someone or something or some group of things, right? But we ignore that maybe because we know that trust is inevitable. But in our text for tonight, I want us to see, I hope we can see as we kind of dig into this, that the prophet Jeremiah, in Jeremiah chapter 17, so if you have your Bible with you in either electronic form or in print form, Jeremiah 17 is where we'll be focusing our attention this evening. And I think that Jeremiah is going to make the point to us that trust is inevitable, but what or who one trusts makes all the difference. So while you're turning to Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 5 through 13, I don't know if we'll probably won't get to 13, we'll only get to 10 probably, 5 through 10. While you're turning there, let me give you just a little bit of context now for where we are compared to where we have been here in the last few weeks. So 800 years have passed since Israel stood before God at the base of Mount Sinai. Moses goes up onto Mount Sinai. He's gone for how long? 40 days. 40 days and 40 nights, and the people patiently wait at the bottom of the mountain f- to receive the love letter from God in the form of... Wait, why are you chuckling? Did they wait? They didn't wait. In fact, it wasn't even... They couldn't even wait 40 days. What did they do? While they were waiting, Aaron leads them into... What? Yeah, the, the, the golden calf, right? So they collect all the earrings and they do all of that. It's not even 40 days. They can't even wait for God for 40 days, right? They do that. So 800 years has passed since that, 300 years since where we were last week when we were looking at Solomon um, and the death of Solomon and the beginning of what we call the divided kingdom. Now remember, coming out of there, Israel is, was designed to be led by God, right? He was supposed to be their king. But after a while, they were like, we want a king like everybody else has. <laughs> right? And God says, all right, but I'm warning you. What did he warn them? I'm warning you, here's what's going to happen. What? Basically make you slaves and take all your belongings. They are going to do you wrong. But you want it. Saul first, then David, then Solomon. And then at the end of our discussion last week, we realized that, or we got to the point where Solomon, we showed his simple, uh, kind of a, a natural slide right into this total rebellion where he thought it wasn't that big of a deal to have 700 wives and 300 junior wives. That also meant, by the way, 700 mother-in-laws. <laughs> but then he thought it was okay to go ahead and build up those idol, places of idol worship on the mountain. And then he began, to, he began to worship them. And ultimately, all of Israel began to worship to the point where God's response was to do what? Anybody remember? What was God's response to Solomon's disobedience? 
God took the kingdom from Solomon's son. Yep, so he, yeah, he pulled the kingdom away and he said, two of the tribes, the southern tribes we now call Judah, will stay with your son. Anybody remember his son's name? Rehoboam. Rehoboam. The top ten are going to go to your aid. No, top ten. The northern ten, not the top ten. That was weird. The northern ten are going to go to Jeremiah, one of Solomon's aides, just like he's walking along, right? And the angel comes, you know, the prophet comes to him and says, hey, you're going to be king. Really cool. Yeah. So he does that, right? So 300 years later, and they've had this pattern of exactly what we've seen. Now, in the, now that the kingdom's divided, there is a series of kings that you can read about in first, uh, first and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, where there's a repetition of something along the lines of, so and so did right in the eyes of God as did their father, or so and so did evil in the eyes of the Lord just like their father, or the opposite of their father. And there's this pattern of dominantly, dominantly evil kings who are leading the people even further and further away from God. So 300 years has passed, and God has been sending a series of prophets. So let's stop for just a moment and say, okay, so what is a prophet? What is the role of prophet? And why would God, in this instance, be sending a prophet to his people, Israel? And I say Israel, meaning both, the northern and the southern kingdom. Because normally we refer to the top ten, like I said before, the ten northern as the northern kingdom, Israel, and the southern kingdom as Judah. Why would he, first of all, what is the prophet and why would he be sending them? What's the role, the job of a prophet in God's economy? The prophet speaks for God. So he is the mouthpiece and speaks on behalf of God. Good start. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Usually a warning. So there's usually included in that message is something from God, right? Usually you don't get a prophet coming along because you're doing everything a-okay, <laughs> right? He shows the way that they're supposed to go. All right, so he's, he's again, re-picturing for them, re-imaging for them. That's the language we've been using, right? He's re-imaging for them what, it's, what their life is supposed to be like. Because remember, what is their task? What was the God-given task given to Israel? To be his people. You are, by carrying out the law, you are demonstrating, right? You are God imagers. They were supposed to image for the world what it looks like to live in right relationship with God, each other, and the world around us. But they had gotten off track. So the prophets come on behalf of God, bring a message of challenge, a reminder to their calling, and oftentimes, sadly, a message of judgment, right? That since you are not doing this, Here's what's going to happen. And so we've had a series of those prophets to the northern kingdom, Amos. Hosea has already come through. In the southern kingdom, Judah, we've seen Micah and Isaiah. They are contemporaries. And now we arrive at Jeremiah. But also, I want to make sure that we remember that when these prophets come along, and even though the preponderance of their message is typically, you're not doing so great, Here's how you've really messed up, and here's what God's going to do. Like in the case of Jeremiah, you're going to go into captivity. You're going to Babylon, and you're going to be there for 70 years, right? Also included in there is a reminder that there is always God's grace, right? There is a renewal of a covenant. If you will take this time and repent and do a better job of imaging me, right, I'm going to bring you back. And through you, even if you don't, through you, there's going to come this Messiah. That promised Messiah, 
messianic line is going to continue. All right. So when we pick up Jeremiah's story, he's, predict he's predicting the fall of Babylon. Seventy years they'll be in captivity under Nebuchadnezzar. And then you have that promise of restoration. And the chapter that we're looking at tonight, I think, will paint a clear picture of the choice that everyone, in this case he's talking to his people, but in the bigger sense, all of us who follow after God have to make. It's a choice that we all have to make. So what I want us to do is I wanted to break it down into a couple of pieces to make it a little bit easier for us to to digest. And what I want us to do is I want us to read 17 verses 5 through 8. 5 through 8. And here's what I want you to listen for or read along and um, try to make note of. We're listening for, first of all, the theme, a one-word theme. And then secondly, you're paying attention to whatever comparative language you might see. In other words, I'm telling you there is a metaphor here that we have to pick up on and some comparative language. So listen and let's see if we can't pick it up because this is the challenge of poetic literature, right? There's a lot of metaphor, but if we listen with some intent, I think we'll find it. So somebody 17, 5 through 8, and it would help if it's common English Bible as we begin. 5 through 8. The Lord proclaims, Cursed are those who trust in mere humans, who depend on human strength, and turn their hearts from the Lord. They will be like a desert shrub that doesn't know when relief comes. They will live in the parched places of the wilderness, in a barren land where no one survives. Happy are those who trust in the Lord, who rely on the Lord. They will be like trees planted by, by the streams, whose roots reach down to the water. They won't fear drought when it comes. Their leaves will remain green. They won't be stressed in the time of drought or fail to bear fruit. All right, so if you were uh, challenged, as I am doing to you now, to identify the theme in a single word, the theme is... Oh, good. You guys got it on the first. Hey, hey, stars for all of you. It took us about 10 minutes this morning to get to that. Yes, trust. Trust is the theme here. Now, he then gives a metaphor, an image. A metaphor is a comparison here, right? And so he's, he compares human beings to what? A desert plants. To a plant, right? A plant and then differing locations of where that plant is. So now you should see the contrasting language. Now, those of you who have your Bibles open, look and see if you can tell me where are the two divided. In other words, where do we find the, the end of the first and the beginning of the second in terms of the two different pictures? Like the verse. Verse, yes. Yeah, start, verse 7 is the second one. So 5 and 6 represents people who are trusting in, in human beings. And the second half is? Trusting God. So if you were doing a study on yourself, you could just grab a sheet of paper and you could put two columns, right? Those who trust in humankind and those who trust in God. in God. And then you could then go down and take a look at it and you could say, what are the effects of trusting humanity and the effects of trusting God? Because everything that's underneath there, I would argue, is an effect of, okay? So here we are, we're like trees, right? We're trusting as a tree, we're either trusting in ourselves or in humanity, or we are trusting in God. So what are the effects then that he identifies for those who trust in man or humankind, I guess is the proper way to say it. They turn their hearts from God. 
So their hearts are turned away from God. What else do we have? They're in a state of unrest. They're in a state of unrest. That's good. What else? Nothing is prospering. Mm-hmm. How did you get the idea that nothing is prospering? Well, it says in my version. Okay. Uh, but No, but I, yeah, okay. <laughs> I mean, for one thing, in this version of mine, they're calling him a shrub. Right, a desert shrub. Right, right. Whereas the, the other one's called a tree. Mm-hmm. But this shrub is not able to prosper under the, you know, there, there's nothing out there. You know, it's desert. Mm-hmm. Okay, so there's no water. There, there's so it's going to be lacking in good health. It's mm-hmm. going to be lacking in any kind of, you know, what, whatever it wants to be fruitful in. It can't because of the environment. Yeah, there's just nothing there. Its needs are not met consistently. Certainly, absolutely, yeah. The needs are not being met. So there is some life. Mm-hmm. It's not described as dead. Mm-hmm. I mean, you go out, you know, the temptation is to go out into the desert and think there's no life here. But actually, you know, scientists tell us that there's actually tons of life in the desert if you know where to look for it, right? It just doesn't look the same. And so like a desert shrub, as you said, is missing a lot of the, uh, a lot of the things, consistent water and all the things that you were talking about that allow it to grow tall in our image of a tree, whereas shrubs tend to, desert shrubs tend to say small, because they're dealing with limited resources and all of those good things, yeah. Mine so, has a, it goes a step further and says it's uninhabitable, salty land. Ooh, yeah, the barren land, right? And notice it says where no one survives. That's a pretty dire picture, is it not? I mean, it's imaginative language, it's metaphoric language, but we get what he's saying, right? Do we? What's he communicating about people who trust in themselves or in humanity? There's all like it. Ultimately, ultimately, you're not going to make it. There's like there's there's no hope or future. Um, I think in this, it, it says the desert shrub doesn't know when relief comes or either comes or will come. So essentially, it's it's in a, a state of deprivation. And it has no, it has nothing to hold out hope for. That's right. And it wouldn't recognize it even if it did show up. Yeah. Oftentimes, and when it does come, like we've seen this before, when in deserts when rain does come, mm-hmm. and usually it comes in volumes. How does the desert respond to that? It doesn't sink. It doesn't Lots. drink it all in. Most of it just yeah. floods away. So it's not even. See, you see how beautiful language like this opens up the image of. You know, well, they're you know they just don't do very good. They're, no, this is really descriptive. Now, if you go to the other column, he says, okay, so what is it like for people who are trusting? Remember, trust is inevitable. We're going to trust someone or something. Now, what is the picture that he gives us of the effects of those who trust in God? You're constantly cared for and provided for. Okay. Cared for and provided for. What else? You need not fear drought. You don't have to be afraid of drought. What else? They're not stressed. Certainly not stressed. You would say that anybody, any, any plant living in the desert is by nature, by definition, stressed. Mm-hmm. Right? Barely having enough to get by. But that's not the picture here. It's it's almost a picture of opposites, a contrast. Right? What else? But even if 
if there is a drought or there's no fruit there, you're not upset about it because you know eventually it's going to come back. That's true. Absolutely. Well, and you're not only living, but you're living well. It's a, when it says their leaves will remain green, so you're in like a very healthy state. Yeah, you always stay fruitful. Yeah, it says never fail to bear fruit. You will never fail to. They will be like trees planted by the streams whose roots reach down deep into the water. Verse 8. Does that remind us of another passage, of another famous passage that has that same kind of language? Psalm 1. Yes, Psalm 1, which talks about being planted. You want to go ahead and read it real quickly? You have it open, I see. The whole thing? Oh, just the first little bit there. Okay. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Here's the parallel. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff that the wind drives away. So do you see the similar, the similar language in the ESV, which he's reading from? That word in verse 7 of our translation, happy are those who trust in the Lord. Your word is blessed, blessed. right? That is probably the best way to translate. We, we, call, we use the word happy because um, I don't know that we fully understand. So let's take just a minute now because the comparison was if those who are uh, trusting in God are happy are blessed, what do you think that means? What does it mean to be blessed by God? To, to be happy in your relationship with God? What, what is he trying to communicate? Blessed. You have what you need. You have what you need. You're favored. You have favor. A right. sense of fulfillment. A sense of fulfillment. Because you are living up to... Your design, you're in right relationship with God. The imagery here is, hey, you never have to worry about fruit, so you're in right relationship with your with God, with the surroundings around you, all of that there. Isn't blessed usually in the context of, you know, whether or not you deserve or have earned it. Exactly. So this is it's this a, could be gift. something that's unmerited because just because of your relationship. Just purely the relationship you have with God, I am choosing out of no merit of your own to give you blessings because, hey, you're in relationship with me and I care for you, right? And the other neat parallel there, too, is that these passages are talking about plants which mm -hmm. can't go do anything. They just have to sit there and wait to be provided for. That's, ex that's great to pick that up. It's exactly right. There's nothing that a it can't, like, if there's not enough water, the plant can't just get up. Unless you're in Lord of the Rings and you know, walking trees. It's, that's the best part of that whole movie series, right? When the trees start walking, right? No, but you can't do anything like that, right? You're totally reliant, right? In both situations, you ultimately can't. Now, notice what is not promised to those who trust in God. Look at it. It's going to take just a little bit of work on our part. What is not promised there? That there won't be drought. Aha! That there won't be drought or there won't be challenging times. So what's the implied promise that is there? They won't fear it. We won't fear it. Why? Because in the end you'll be taken care of. And why? Because your roots are in you trust the in the Lord. Exactly. You're in relationship with the Lord, right? So these things, even though challenges are going to come, right? So we sometimes get a really bad theology that says, hey, if I'm in right relationship with God, each other, and the world around me, that that means everything's going to be smooth sailing, right? So the minute something goes wrong, how do we respond? 
we must not be in really. It's like, what did I do to, to you know, to deserve this, right? And there is a place for us wondering sometimes, have we strayed away? And is this God's disciplining for us? But the promise is, even in the midst of the disciplining, which he's getting ready to announce to them, that God's promise is, I'm going to be with you in the midst of that. Now, the converse to that blessedness, that happiness, I don't like happiness because for us in the West, happiness is contingent upon what? Circumstances. Circumstances. Blessing has nothing to do with circumstances and how you feel about it. That's why it's interesting. Sometimes I really love the CEB in most instances, but sometimes I wonder why they decided to go away from blessed or blessed and go to happy. Someday when I go and see a few more of them, I know one guy on the translation team, but I'm gonna, maybe I'll probably never see him again. But if I did, I would ask him, why did you choose that word? But look at what they used um, to describe the person who is trusting in themselves. They're not happy and blessed. They are cursed. Okay, cursed. We should probably take a couple of minutes and think to ourselves, surely that's beyond or not the same as some sort of a magical evil omen or spell, right? We're not talking Harry Potter kind of of cursing here, are we? This is like being forsaken, pretty much. Oh, interesting. Forsaken. That's a good word. Like where no one's watching out for you. Where no one's work, okay, forsaken, where no one's walk, watching out for you, that's, that's actually really good. The, this is Deuteronomy 28 all over again. Which is Deuteronomy 28, remind us? It, it's the blessing and curses, right. but we get to choose. It, it's our choice to choose life or to choose death, choose blessing or choose curses. And, mm-hmm. you know, you've got the mountains up there and everything. To, and by the way, yeah. this is a choice. And that's one of the things I want to make sure that we highlight here, that we understand, right? So this is what makes us, as human beings made in the image of God, differing from the rest of his creation. We're a little lower than the angels. The word we've been using for that angels is what? The Elohim. We're not in that realm, in that location. We're here. We want to be there, but we're here, right? But we're above the rest of his creation. And the difference here is that when you're an animal, you live by instinct only. You don't make a choice as a geese as to whether you're going to fly south for the winter or not. Everything in your makeup, everything about you says, that's what we do, right? So there's no choice involved other than they follow their instinct, right? So I think there is a little bit of that imagery here that when we're living, trusting man, it's kind of like we're just being like the animals. We're doing whatever we feel like doing in that particular moment, and we go, oh, I feel like doing this, let's go do that with not a thought, right, about whether and what are the consequences of that, is it obedient, disobedient, right, any of that. So that word cursed in Hebrew is arar. It means to bind, to hem in with obstacles, and here I love it, to render powerless, to resist. So it's this Genesis 3 curse. That thing that happened after the fall, when they're sent away, another way of thinking about it, it's being separated from your purpose or your community. So when we go back to Genesis chapter 3 and we see what happens after the first sin enters into humanity, they're cast out of the garden, the place of fellowship, the place of community with God. They're placed outside of that, right? And now they've pushed in 
and they're separated from their purpose, right? Was their purpose ever to have to toil with the earth? Was their purpose to ever have to live a finite period of time and then die and return to the earth? Were they ever expected to have to um, have pain in childbirth and have the man be ruling over the woman? None of those things, right? So they've been separated. That's the idea here. So when you're trusting in your own humanity, you are, trust, you are separating yourself, living separate from your calling and from your purpose and your community. That's what it means to be cursed. So when Cain kills Abel, he is, same language, cursed. When uh, God pronounces judgment on the serpent, he is cursed. You are cursed to crawl on the ground. You are going to have women be terrified of you. All of those things, mankind, it's a separation from your purpose. So now he goes on. Those are the, that's the comparison. And let's do two more verses really quickly because I think he then goes on after he's made this contrast to give us what I wrote down as a, what I'm calling a red light warning. A red light warning. Let's look at 9 and 10. Somebody read that CEB if you would to start with and then I'm going to have you read it as well. The most cunning heart is beyond help. Who can figure it out? I, the Lord, probe the heart and discern hidden motives to give everyone what they deserve, the consequences of their deeds. So let's start in verse 9. The heart, the most cunning heart, is beyond help. Who can figure it out? This is probably the translation that most of you are familiar with. Verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The heart is deceitful. Above all things. How's the rest of it go? Deceitful, desperately sick. And desperately sick. Now, heart here, is that the common way that we, is it the same kind of heart that we talked about at the beginning of the, the gathering here around the tables? The heart, we call it the heart as the center of our emotion. So now he's making sure that we don't get it confused. So in Hebrew thought, the heart is your, what was the word we used for it in English? Love God with all of your, your very. That was the word we used, right? So the heart is always considered the center, the core essence of who we are. So this is essentially saying like, if you are evil. That what? Like if you are evil. Like at the root of you, you are. He's saying that at our core, we are completely and totally and utterly corrupt. So there's not this idea of, okay, well, I can't trust my heart because my emotions maybe are fallible, but if I just use my logic, I'm going to be okay. Remember, that's those that differentiation is not allowed in Hebrew thought, right? right? So he's communicating that this heart, who you are, is desperately wicked. Who can know it? What's he saying there? What's he asking? Is that rhetorical? What's what's his point? He knows. <laughs> yeah, he's pretty much saying, none of you know how bad it is. I know how bad it is. <laughs> I, yeah, he's saying, I discern hidden motives. Like, and he, so they're theoretically hidden even from that person. So that's a key. That's something we need to understand, right? 
So because he, he says he probes the heart, and so maybe that's putting us in certain situations to then see how we respond to them. Okay. What's he communicating when he says, our heart, our very, is desperately wicked? Who can possibly know it? Because you could appear as if, you can put on the facade as if everything is good and you're this great person, but there's this hidden motive behind why you're doing what you're not doing it because you're supposed to be a good person. There's a motive behind why you're doing it. And so God's probing you and he knows, yeah, you may seem to everybody else that you're doing all this great stuff, but when I look at it, not so much. So how many of you think, by a show of hands here, how many of you think that um, we're pretty good at deceiving even ourselves? Yeah, we're all uh, for those of you on podcasts, everybody's hand went up, right? <laughs> so you're so desperately good, who can know it? Is we don't even know how bad off we can be. That's what happens. That's the, the communication he has. And basically he's saying there's no hope for you, right? So look at what he says. Oh, by the way, let me, let me just um, give you this little bit of information. I like this because, again, this is a story. This um, phrase here in Hebrew is a combination of two adjectives. Akav is the word in Hebrew. Akav is the word. And it's a combination of two adjectives um, that has the idea of a footprint and a heel. And you say, what in the world is a footprint and a heel? So it is uh, an idiom. So in Hebrew thought, an idiom is when somebody lifts up their heel, it's a sign of turning against. It's a sign of rebellion against. All right? So in the storyline, if you wanted to trace this through the Genesis storyline, you have in Genesis chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, you have a curse. And the curse that's put on the snake, the Messiah, the promise of the Messiah, is... There's a head involved, someone stepping on a head, and somebody striking at the heel. So you've, have you ever wondered, what is that imagery all about? Obviously, we understand that Christ is going to crush the head, right? If you want to kill a snake, what do you do? Chop off the head. We got that part, but did you ever wonder what the, what the biting at the heel was all about? This is the same, that's the same combination of words. We see it also a little bit later in Genesis. When we have a set of twins who are wrestling inside of a mother, their name was the heel grabber, and Yaakov is a derivative of that, and it means the one who grabs at the heel. So when you're grabbing at the heel, you are usurping, you are taking a position that doesn't belong to you. Yeah, do you see where we're going with this? So he's got that beautiful picture here of your supplanting, and the reason that, um, that Satan attempted to do what he did through the serpent, and the reason that Jacob did what he did, was both of them desired to have control. They wanted something that didn't belong to them. They said, I'm going to take this for myself. So when we follow our hearts, our corrupted hearts, believing that we can somehow trust it, we're literally usurping, we're literally rebelling against God who says, you're in a relationship with me. Here's what I want for you. Here's what you are supposed to be like. You're just supposed to image me. So when we get down to chapter, uh, to verse 10, somebody read verse 10 again for me. I, the Lord, probe the heart and discern hidden motives to give everyone what they deserve. 
the consequences of their deeds. Isn't this a frightening thought? Mm -hmm. Verse 10. If it is, why? Because if you're corrupt at the core and you don't realize that you're corrupt at the core, then you don't know what the consequence of your deeds are. You don't have the ability to to project. It's kind of like with Solomon. I mean, do you think he knew the moment he started collecting wives and chariots and horses, do you think he had an image, a picture of his mind of what it was going to look like down here? No. No. So it's almost like you can't weigh, like now before you do something, you weigh the consequence. Is it worth what the consequence is going to be for me to do that? But if you don't realize what that is, you don't have a way to control it and weigh it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And we typically don't know the, the consequences of our actions. We may never know the consequences. That's true. We may never know. But going back to that idea, he knows, he probes, and it says that he knows, what is it? The thoughts. He probes the heart and discerns hidden motives and gives everyone what they deserve, the consequences of their deeds. If justice were to be executed perfectly, what would happen as a result of this? We'd all be in trouble. (laughs) We'd be the ones on the cross. So it's easy, it would be easy for us to read a text like this, right? And it's a pretty big downer. (laughs) If you think about it, right? And he's going to go on, and we won't take the time, but he's going to go on in chapter 17, and he's going to go on and he's going to tell them, hey, there's no way out for you. Right, But if we left it there, we'd be in trouble because if you flip over, and I'll just flip over for you to chapter 23, there is a promise here mixed in here as well. If you want to turn over to 23, the first couple of verses he's talking about the shepherds, the people who have been given the task of leading Israel, that would be the kings and the priests, have done a terrible job. But listen to what he says in verse 3. I myself, this is Yahweh speaking, I myself will gather the few remaining sheep, sheep being Israel, from all the countries where I have driven them. I will bring them back to their pasture and they will be fruitful and multiply. I will place over them shepherds who care for them. Then they will no longer be afraid or dread harm, nor will any be missing, declares the Lord. The time is coming when I will raise up a a righteous descendant from David's line. So here's that messianic prophecy, right? Still going through. Why do we need a savior? The answer to the question tonight is we need a savior. Why? Because well, it's very clear where we're going without one. We're corrupt and deceitful at our very core. We can't even know how bad off we are. But the promise is, right, that he will do what is just and right in the land. And he will save Israel would live and will live in safety. And his name will be the Lord is our righteousness. So when it comes down to it, ultimately... The choice that we have to make is who, in whom, or in who, will we trust? Sometimes people ask me, can you talk about and explain to me how it is that you understand salvation? People talk about conversion, salvation, coming to Christ. What are some of the words we use? Um, Being saved. Being saved, right. So ultimately, here's the choice that's put behind, put before all of us. The God who probes our heart, that deep and dark places of inside of us, 
says you either get absolute justice for the deeds that you've done or you get to choose mercy. That's the choice. One leads to death. One leads to life. So when we read something like John 3, verse 16, that we all learned probably in the King James, for God so loved the world that he gave his only or one and only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's the choice. You either get, that's it. Do you want justice for the things that you've done in this life? If so, God is going to render that justice to you. And in my opinion, that's it. The converse of that or contrasted against that is those who live life by the stream in relationship with God get offered life, not just life here, but life eternal. Isn't that a beautiful picture for us? That in the midst of all of this, as we focus in on this Lenten season, on all the areas in which our heart is so deceitful, that through it all there's this, this thread that's woven that says, yeah, don't trust yourself, trust in me, and ultimately, I've got the plan. You're never going to be alone. I think that's a great reminder for us, right? As we kind of go through here over the next few weeks into and through our Lenten season. Any final thoughts? You mentioned the uh, <coughs> footprint and then the heel a bit earlier. And it made me think the only time that you really see a footprint and then the heel is when you're walking back. Like stepping back away from something. So you're away from your purpose, away from your... Yeah, you're backtracking, essentially. Ooh, that's, a, ooh, that's good. I like that. Yeah, because when you're walking forward, you don't see... Yeah, you don't yeah, see you your, go your footprints to fall behind toe. you. That's Instead, you're going like that. That's good. Good. All right, that's pretty good. Father, we thank you for this timely reminder here as we are working our way through the Lenten season of just how deceitful we can be in our own hearts, how we even lie to ourselves. But yet in the midst of this, there is the promise of the Messiah, the one who stood in our place on our behalf. And so as we come to this time of communion, a way of uh, reminding ourselves of the sacrifice that you made on our behalf, may we be open again to this to be a means of grace in our lives, to better and more accurately reflect who you are. For we make our prayer in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Table Dallas podcast. We invite you to join the conversation at one of our upcoming tables. To learn more about us, please check out our website at thetabledallas.com. We are saving a seat for you at the table.